This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. At The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. That's Matt, that's Zach, that's Derek. Guys, we are digging into 1 Timothy 5, and as with everything in this letter, there is literally like, sorry, we can't get our timer going. Here we go. Can we do it? How many college degrees did it take for us to make that? Was that four? Four Four college degrees total to get the timer working? Two each. All right, here we go. So, so the thing with, with verse Timothy five, but also with the rest of first Timothy, I guess you get extrapolated out to all of Paul's writings is it's so dense and there's so many things. And we always have to remember that later was when they broke things up into chapters, broke things up into section headers and, you know, gave them all these things. But this is just a letter to, to, from Timothy to his pupil or from Paul to his pupil, Timothy. And there's so much packed in, even from the very, very beginning here. But as we were talking about off air, before we hopped into this, like, where else do you see like standards for what actually makes a widow that we should help? And I think that that's a very interesting way to start, but there's almost an admonishment here before we get to verse eight, because I do want to kind of camp out on verse eight, but in the first seven verses are really from verse three to seven, you see Basically, like, hey, if you're a widow that has children or grandchildren, like, you should let them show their godliness by caring for those people. And so we live in a culture, obviously, that we default to when something goes wrong, we want the government to fix it. But then there's also within the church, like, when something goes wrong, we want the church to automatically fix it. But there are times in the Bible where there are examples to where it's like the primary care for people is within the context of a family. And so when you talk about even as father, as a father, as we all are, your primary uh, catechism for your kids is not their Sunday school class. It's not their youth group. It's not their retreat. It's not their, their camp. It's your household. It's a place where we, they spend the majority of their time. And that's where they should be being ministered to way more often than just a youth pastor or somebody else. I agree with that. And that is the end of the show because everyone just looked at me with <laughs> yep. a blank stare. So that no. either means I'm the smartest person alive or nobody agrees. So somebody no, help I, me out. I agree with that. I think I think there's some some things that Paul's saying. Like obviously the church the church should be there to help people that need help, but I think it's not a free for all. And I think you see that throughout this this chapter is where he's he's putting some parameters on what the church should look at to you can't just say, I need help so we're going to just help whoever they're like, there's some, there's some caveats there. There's some, some potential no's coming out of the church. And, and it's okay to say no. Exactly. It's okay to say no. And it's okay to say no from the perspective of, um, if Paul was charging Timothy in these letters specifically on, you know, charging him, giving him instruction and direction on the church in Ephesus, Hey, this is how you steward that church in Ephesus. Um, which means including stewarding the finances and who you serve and don't serve. And I, I believe from, from what I've read about context in this is that there were older, um, there were younger widows in the church that were, uh, verse six, self-indulgent, right? The way that they dressed, the way that they acted, the way that they talked, the way that they projected themselves into leadership perspectives. So he was referencing that. And, and to your point, Kyle, I think when it comes to Paul's letters, they're so dense, and sometimes there is this, is he talking generally to all believers, or, or is, is he talking specifically to them? To at them? That time. Exactly. At that church, at that time, in that location. Um, well, how, uh, the, let's, let's not leave that point too quick, Derek. Like, well, what do y'all think about that? Because I, I tell people all the time, I was like, if you're new to the Bible, don't read the Bible as if everything is the same, because inside of that document, there is history, there's lamentations, there's poetry, there's wisdom writing, there's prophecy. There's whatever category revelation would be, would that just be apocalyptic literature or something like that? Same thing within these letters is like, okay, is this an admonishment to a particular group at a particular time in history? Or is this how we're supposed to be operating currently in Edmond, Oklahoma in 2023? I think, I think it's both. I think he's speaking to a specific problem of widows who, or people who are, who are claiming to be widows, who the church is called to serve and you know, bring under you know, Christ's protection like we are a refuge. 
Um, and, but there are people who are obviously taking advantage of that, you know, kind of like you see, like I'm a Christian. So I like, you should, you should buy from me because I'm a Christian business owner and I'm using that as a way to sell my goods. I think, I think Paul here's also saying like, there are people who don't actually need help. They have financial resources, they have means, but they're trying to come into the church to take advantage of that. And you should have some discernment to be able to, to tell the difference or at least ask the right questions to figure it out. Okay. So Zach, I'll pitch it to you. Um, we learned a couple episodes back. You're a new ish believer. I don't know when you cross that line from a new to substantial, but, um, new believer, what do you think to Kyle's question? How do you interpret? How do you know? How are you reading or interpreting what goes to all believers? What goes specifically to these people at that time in this location? I think as I read this, a couple of things stand out. The first one is just going back to the very beginning of chapter five. For me, this is actually pretty impactful when I first read it um, a couple of years ago, which is kind of how to, how to behave and how to perceive those around you that are in different echelons. So do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. That actually did a lot for me walking around a church organization and a community to understand how should I be interacting with you? You know, you want to, and especially as he's talking with Timothy about that weird line between giving deference to people that are older, older than you while leading them, right? There's a, there's a way that you need to be able to do that. So I guess the way that I think about it is I I think that you can pull things out. They're going to be useful to you personally that you can understand that are written for somebody else also so that you could understand how they're supposed to be behaving and you can sort of slot in the right way. So I, I guess I kind of take it at face value initially would be my, my thought. Which is incredibly helpful. And, and the realization just hit me right now as you were talking that when I hear a new believer, I think new relationship with Christ. I don't think somebody who then is injected into church culture, because church culture is a real thing, that inside the church walls, it's a, I mean, it, it's frankly a weird culture of Oh, bless you, brother, and amen. This, you know, where you would never say the same things outside the church. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, it's so. So, Zach, you actually said something. You, you said face value. Okay, so I kind of keyed into that whenever you were speaking just now. So, a child, when you know, you hear about childlike faith and those types of things. Like a child sees things at face value. That doesn't mean they're not creative. Doesn't mean they don't use their imaginations. But it's like they see things in the exact moment. That's why. That's why they respond as if their entire world is melting down because their brother took their block. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's just face value what's happening to them. But when you've been in the church, whatever the hell that means for decades, and you've been a part of church culture and denominational culture, and you've done all these different camps and studies and blah, blah, blah. You have all these lenses through which you view things and people bring their own theology and lived experience to use a freaking overused bullcrap term to whatever they're reading in the Bible. Whereas as a new believer, you're like, oh, it just says what it says, guys. Whereas it's like, well, this guy's been in the church of Christ for a long time. This guy was Catholic. Now he's Protestant. This guy used to be Muslim. Then he was atheist. Now he's, now he goes to a Methodist church. Like everyone kind of brings their lens to it. Whereas you just said, no, face value, like read it at face value. Like imagine trying to Go through mental gymnastics with verse one and two. And no, it's like, hey, uh, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. <clears throat> Even if you don't like your dad, you know what that means. Like, and we try to extrapolate it out and make it this big philosophical nonsense thing. It's like, no, just, just read it. Like, I don't even know if you notice that you said that, but do you feel like in your first couple of years of being a Christian, like you've just been way more pragmatic about, no, it just, it says what it says. Like, and I'm not going to pretend I'm smarter than what it says. Yeah. That's key for me. I, I spent an awful lot of time actually reading in depth. Like I mentioned all of these different perspectives about this and going into the depth and blah, blah, blah. But the reality is if you're trying to bring this into your life in a way that's meaningful and you're living it, I think you need to understand what it means. I go back to like a Billy Graham as an example. Again, I mean, I think he could go as deep as you wanted, but what he brought was this, it's very evident what it's trying to say. And if you can actually do it, it's going to show in your life. And that's going to be the most important thing. Matt, you look like you wanted to hop in on that just with the, the face value stuff. Because I'll just even tee you up a little bit. One of the reasons, as I mentioned, I think one of our early episodes is you're a, you're a, <clears throat> a guy that likes to marinate on things, but then you, you will give feedback, but you kind of have a light touch in the things that, that you say back to people. And so, but you, you seem to, when you describe scripture, as you and I have talked about it off air and even on here, 
like you have a very like a matter of fact way of saying, well, like this is what it says. And so it's like, I understand we just talked about this thing. We talked in a circle for 10 or 15 minutes, but this is just kind of what it says. It seems like you're a face value guy too. I am, but I think, I think you can take stuff at face value and like verse one, I think that's pretty cut and dry, but I think, I think God also gives us wisdom and discernment to say, to look at, to look at things where, where Paul is, is instructing the church and how it should act, how it should choose elders and deacons, how it should deal with widows. Like he, he's not specifically addressing just some guy, some random guy off the street who comes in and is putting his hands in the offering bucket. Right. But like, I think, I think that God gives us wisdom and discernment to say, okay, this is a principle that we can use to discern other things within the church. And so like, yeah, verse one and two, I think that's pretty cut and dry. When we get into the widows, I think the church has lots of people that come in that try to take advantage of it. And you could, you speak that you speak churchies and you say all the right things. And I, I think if we're to be good stewards of what the church has and what, what Paul is calling Timothy to do, I think some discernment is necessary to divide the people who are coming to take advantage and the people who actually need things. And so like, it all comes down to asking questions because if a widow comes in the church and says, Hey, I'm a widow, I need help. Okay. Well, tell me about your family. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. Right. Tell me like, do you have kids? Like I'm all alone. I have nobody is way different than I have three grown children. Well, where are they? You you know what I mean? Like, so, and that, I think that's what he's, he's speaking to here. Like, if I were to just go into a church, I think the same principle would apply. Well, do you have family that can take care of you? Should be a question that should be asked. I'm not a widow, just asking for help. I think the church would be, I think the church would be doing God, God's body a, a disservice by just saying, yeah, whatever, whatever, just anything, all bets are off. Anybody can come in and get, get whatever they need. Not that we should be looking to turn people away. But clearly the family is the, the focal point of how we're to take care of each other. And it should come from the family first because that's, that's how God ordained it, right, is the family. We certainly have that backwards now. I mean, Ag- agreed. When even, I think it looks different because obviously in that culture it was, you know, you, you all live together. Like you had multi-generational houses, whereas now <clears throat> if you have a house that has multi-generations in it, that's weird. That's really strange. You're poor. Yeah. Like people in, in, even if you're not, people think, oh, well, you must live in the slums. Right. Yeah. And you just, you know, that's not typically indicative of well-off people or whatever. And then again, we live in a community where there are so many old folks homes and so many old folks communities. And it's kind of one of those things. It's like you pay for your responsibility to go away. And so it's like you, you have an indebtedness to your parents to, to, to care for them because they cared for you at the beginning. You care for them at the end. That's kind of how society has been built upon in terms of, you know, familial interactions. But then we, we get to where we're at now to where it's like, it seems more convenient to do it that way. And I'm certainly not hating on, you know, these, these facilities that take really, really good care of these, these people, but it does seem a little bit outside. It's like, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind where mom or dad can be taken care of somewhere and you don't actually have to do it. Like, anyway, I struggle with that because it's like, you know, I get the convenience of it. And if you have the means, like, why wouldn't you do something like that? But it's almost I don't know. I don't want to say something stupid, but it, it seems like almost dishonorable to a way to your parents that you're not the one directly caring for them. You're just visiting. You're popping in a few times a week to have a conversation and, you know, assuage your guilt and then move on with your life. Well, Kyle, I think, I think it goes back to Zach's face value comment right there, right? Because in verse four, it says, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Why? Here's the transition. Paul is the king of, of transition. And, and I mean, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that again, if you're reading it for face value and it's just cut and dry, it is, hey, it pleases God if you take care of your parents or grandparents, if you're able to. If you're able to is the key, right? Hey, if you take care of your parents or grandparents, that pleases God. Yeah. One thing I was exposed to recently, just total polar opposite is a Muslim guy that's from Bangladesh and their culture is that their families live together in the same homes. And as the family grows, they add floors Mm. and they actually, uh, there's a payment system and you, you, you pay the older person, et cetera. And then as people, you know, die, et cetera, then you move up. 
And that's how it works for the entire family and all of the different homes. So in other places in the world, things are different. And one thing that's, that's interesting about this is it really encourages you to have a, it seems like a clean break from your parents as you depart and cleave to your wife and have your own household, but still recognizing that you need to have that close relationship. So, you know, different cultures, different ideas, mm-hmm. but it kind of, it kind of challenged me because it, it's obvious that they value that family piece and that they take care of each other. And, uh, you know, it's, it was convicting to make sure that, you know, we, we should be doing the same. Yeah. And I, I don't want <clears throat> to belabor this point too far because we spend a lot of time talking about it, but I, I do wonder just to leave it even as a thought experiment, uh, for the people listening, but also for us, like, what precipitated us as a culture not valuing our elderly? Um, because as Westerners and specifically as Americans, like that's why elder care is such big business is because people don't want to do it themselves within their families. <clears throat> and for millennia and for generations and generations and generations, people were able to take care of themselves without immense wealth, right? They were able to have seven kids and no one looked at them like they were crazy because they weren't thinking about, well, that's seven times X amount that I plan to pay for college. You know, four of them are girls crap. That's four weddings. You know, that's X amount of dollars or, you know, oh, that's this many dowries or whatever the the cultural thing is. It's like, where have we gotten to in our most elevated, evolved state as 2023 Western Americans to where we don't value those people anymore and we also don't value children? So leaving that out there in the ether while we uh, get to uh, verse yeah, eight. That's yeah. Because, nothing, to, nothing to tackle there. We'll just no, leave it. You know we'll what? Fine. It fine. Let's actually dig in. Okay. Let's, let, let's dig into that. There, there's a lot of great stuff here and, and we're watching the clock. Um, I don't have an answer to that. And I, I think it's an important thing to discuss, but I don't know how we got here. Uh, I don't specifically understand the sociological data as it pertains to what has happened in the West from the you know, 1700s to now. Well, I think there is a lot of layers and variables and things that have contributed to that. There's not, I don't think there's a one answer, but I think the devaluing of family, um, a lot of that comes from consumerism. And if you look at, if you look at, you know, 150 years ago, people had seven kids, people are also making all their own stuff. If I had four daughters who were going to get married, my wife was making all four of those dresses. And now it's, well, I don't have time to do any of that because I'm pursuing my best life and I'm pursuing what I deem important. And if I don't deem that I have enough time to take care of my parents, and I don't, but it's just like reading your Bible, find time. You can find a way to do it. It just might be uncomfortable. And again, I say all these things because these are things that I struggle with too. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not coming to the table going, right. I got it all figured out. Cause like, that's something that I, I have to reconcile too. Like my dad's 77 and he still has a job and there's going to be like, there's three of us and there's going to be a day where he can't take care of himself anymore. And that's if that's, if he, if he were to come into my house, that would that would just disrupt the entire dynamic of my nuclear family right now. But the Bible say, <laughs> well, you're okay. So Matt, I'll add, I'll add to that. Okay. I'll add to that. Um, I believe, and this is my opinion. This isn't based on science or some special study. I think it's the idol of convenience and the idol of comfort. Yeah. And I think that that goes a couple ways, right? Like if it, Kyle, to your point, if you have seven kids in the year in the 1800s, you also didn't have a retirement date in a 401k. To say, hey, I understand that when I turn this age, I'm going to go into complete comfort and all I'm going to do all day is play golf and do this. Like, no, there is a, I'm going to work hard until I can't work hard. And then I've got family around to help take care of me and maybe work the farm or whatever it is, right? Because um, I'm not putting myself or my life on the idol of convenience. Hey, the average cost of a kid is this. And so I think we can afford this many kids. And outside of that, even though children are arrows in a quiver and great as a man who has many children to sit at his table in his elderly days, yeah, we wouldn't be able to take his great vacations or even take a vacation. And that sounds really good. So I'm going to conveniently not have more kids so that I can have a better life a better quality of life or lifestyle. It's the uh, idol of convenience the, and, and comfort. The tra- John Piper calls it the tragedy of uh, self-comfort and what do I get out of it? His, his famous sermon, Seashells, that he gave back in, in 2000, I think, where he talks about the tragedy of the couple that 
that saved and saved and saved so they could go live in some small villa in Florida and go pick up seashells. And he compared that to like a missionary family who gave up everything to go to Africa to evangelize and they died tragically or what we would consider tragically. But if you compare the two, there's only one tragedy. And that's the, that's the couple that, that saved and saved for retirement so they could go be by themselves on the beach picking up seashells. Well, and, and to your point, I know, Zach, you're jumping in here, but one real quick is I also don't want to disqualify myself from that because to your point, I'm not exempt from that. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there, the draw of culture is on me as well towards convenience and comfort. I struggle. I wrestle. I, I have to consciously humble myself or make decisions or pray through and have conversations with God to say, hey, look, this pile of cash in the bank makes me feel comfortable, but I know you're calling me over here. So I have to consciously trade what you're calling me to do for the comfort or this, the false sense of security of a number in a bank account, right? That's not, I'm not exempt from that. And, and I want to put my name in the hat to say, I also struggle with those things. Zach? Yeah, you said, I'm not sure if we could pinpoint one thing. I think a lot of people would probably point towards industrial revolution, right. the fact that the families blew up and God, you know, dad went to work and then he had to show his value and all that sort of thing. And then eventually, I think the elder generations from a work perspective were not able to provide the value. And so there was some sort of decline in the opinion about that. And I think we have to fight back against that. I know a lot of people in my world that work for 40 years. And then when that's done, they've self-identified their identity with their work and they have to rediscover themselves. One thing that was put to me recently that really made an impact was every time a person dies, a universe dies. There's never a combination of that person's experience, what they've learned in their life, what they can convey to you, the history that they saw, et cetera. And when you get two universes together, you can learn a lot. And so I think just having that respect uh, for the people around you and, and a genuine human connection asking them about what they've experienced is critical. Uh, last thing is um, I, I've heard that differently. In fact, in, in family ministry, we use it a lot. And, and the phrase or statement that we use is when a grandparent dies, a library burns. Yep. Mm. And it's usually a total loss, right? Yeah. All of that wisdom and history and story, because we haven't valued that, we've seen their output instead of, um, we've valued what they can produce as an output instead of their story as a life. Um, and so we, we do challenge, and, and I challenge listeners here, is, hey, view your elders, um, older man, older woman, view your elders and your parents and, and begin to ask that question. Uh, Matt, you said it earlier, as a widow comes into the church, and if the church says, hey, what's your story? If we could ask those questions inside of our family, imagine the generational wisdom that can get passed down from generation to generation to say, Hey, dad, hey, grandfather, what's your story? Well, that's, sure. that's typically the lament when a grandparent passes away is we've got the old pictures, you know, we have some, you know, the old crock pot or, you know, whatever that thing is, but we don't have the wisdom and we don't have the stories or something that I've noticed with my particular family is everyone keeps it to themselves. Like, you know, one of my family members that was elderly was arrested at the airport because they accidentally had a pistol in their travel bag like literal honest mistake. Like this was a, the van travel bag. And then, you know, they took it to the airport on an accident. Here is this elderly, you know, member of my family that's in handcuffs with TSA and all that. I found out about that like seven years after it happened. Like my family just doesn't communicate these stories and these, these wisdoms. And, you know, last year, basically all my grandparents died. So it's like, you know, as of last year, I have no grandparents anymore. And I picked up bits and pieces of their stories about how they grew up and things like that. But those like, those like, tangible foundational life lessons. Like I I didn't get that. And so, you know, that's why things like you would assume like these ancestry.coms and all these DNA things. It's like, most people don't know their family's story. Like they don't, they don't know where their family came from. They don't know exactly when they got to this country. They don't, they don't know any of that kind of stuff. And that kind of goes back to our identity, identity, which is something that you were talking about, Zach, which, um, you know, that especially makes verse eight of, of this chapter. So haunting to me personally, because this is verse eight. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So I say that that verse is haunting for me because, you know, I'm an alpha personality. I'm a competitor. Uh, I want to do well. If there's 10 people competing, I want to be number one. If there's a million people competing, I want to be number one. I, I, that's the guy I want to be. 
and I've talked about this before on on the podcast because we've we've covered suicide and talked about suicide before. And I talked about you know the times in my life where I thought about suicide, not contemplated suicide. There there is a I guess a, a physical and tangible difference there, but where I've con- where I've thought about it, it was always an intellectual exercise for me. And when those thoughts were the loudest in my brain is when I was doing the worst in my career, when my identity as a provider was that oh, I'm only making this much. I should be making more. I'm in sales. I'm, I'm built for this. And yet I'm not getting it done. And in our community, you're surrounded by opulence. You're surrounded by people that are absolutely murdering it. And like when you talk to your, to, we talk to our friends in, our, in this community that are CPAs, it is astonishing the amount of money that people have and that they're able to produce and all those types of things. And I'm a comparison person as well. Because like athletically, I would always be like, okay, that guy's a little bit faster than me. I need to be able to get faster than that guy. Or that guy is, you know, hitting better right now. That's why he's higher in the lineup. I need to start hitting better. And so you constantly compare, but that's such a haunting verse for me because when I was at my lowest points in my career, when I felt like I was really not doing good work, I would read that scripture and it's like, oh, I don't just feel bad. I'm sinning. (laughs) It's just like, oh, it's way worse than that. Like I'm not providing in a way. And this was even before we had kids. And then when you have kids, everything gets elevated and it, you know, just gets jacked way, way up. But I don't know about for, for you guys, but for me, I know that there are a lot of guys that when they read that, that is the ultimate gut check when it comes to practically providing on this planet. Because this, this book is full of opportunities for you to feel like you're missing the mark. But right there, when it comes to being a provider, if you're not hitting the mark, it freaking sucks. It's so debilitating. This will probably, I don't know, I don't know how you'll take this, but it all says he, him. He, him, he, mm-hmm. him. So as you're reading it, it's, it's personally convicting. And I know that may be controversial, but um, when, when you're, as, as the male provider of your house, it hits you pretty hard. It does. And you want to make sure that you're not just providing financially, but spiritually and everything else that you need. Well, in God's order, like Jesus talks about it, Paul talks about it, and it was created first. Like in the order of things, like God, God taking chaos into order. There's a specific way he did that. And we have this authority, this, uh, this divine authority. And I think that gets thrown around as like this, oh, do what I say. I'm the head of the household. And I think we can misconstrue that a lot. And that, that can become a sin in itself. But this right here, it's like, it's bringing you back to this. Okay, you have the authority, but it's this, it's this, this authority to serve and to provide and, and to know that if I go, if I go work and provide for my family, that's one thing and money's great, but I'm also called to provide other things for my family. Like if I go work from eight to five, I come home, my day has just started. Paul Washer has a sermon on the authority of men. And that's, he talks about that quite a bit. That was one of the most convicting sermons that I've ever, I've ever listened to is like, if I, when I get home from work, my day has just begun. I have the authority to stay up until everybody is taken care of. And I don't, I'm not a part of the equation at all. I don't, like, I don't get, I provide, I have the authority to provide. And you should always be coming back to this verse because that's what we're called to do. Now I will, I will add a couple things. So Matt, to your point, I've never heard it said that way is that, um, I say that again for me. I don't, get, I get to provide. I have the authority to provide for my family. I, I'm not part of the equation. I can send you, I can send you guys the, the link to okay, that sermon. Not part of the equation to receive. To receive. Right? Yeah. I'm the provider. Okay. I, See, I, I, I absolutely, I've never heard it that way, but I think you're, I think he is spot on in that. Um, and, and I think that goes back to the idols of convenience and comfort and, and comfort and entitlement, right? Because a lot of men, even if they do go eight to five, they come home and they say, well, I'm entitled to, because I worked hard out there. Now I'm entitled to sit and relax. Yeah, some, trans, some transparency. Like I, I work hard and I've been successful at work. And I, I think that if you're looking at all the metrics of, of the world, you would say like, okay, Matt has done pretty well for himself. But when you go home and you think like, okay, I have literally worked my tail off. I deserve to take a break. Right. I deserve to look at my phone. And you've got a two-year-old kid. And this is, this is a real life experience. You've got a kid who's like, I've not seen my dad all day. His face is buried in his phone. Dad, put your phone down. Dad, put your phone down. It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, hey, I've waited all day for my dad. I yeah. deserve to see my dad's face. Like, 
and like, what am I, what am I doing? Like I, I am, I am in sin outside of God's ordained will for me because I think that I worked really hard today. That's, that's absurd. That's asinine. And like, I, I, like I still struggle with that. Like I still have to, that's a daily reminder. That's a daily thing that I have to call myself to do. Um, but yeah, I, there's a lot on our shoulders. So going, sure. going back to eight, Kyle, I have a slight twist from, from what you're saying in the interpretation of verse eight is the, the notes that I wrote here to the side was just that Paul holds no feels for the lazy. Mm. Like it, for me, providing yes is a, there is a dollar amount that is required. There is an amount that's required to provide meals and shelter and clothing, um, which I think that's later on here in, in five or six, right? Like, hey, if you have meals and shelter and clothing, what else do you really need? But um, I actually see that as just a Paul's call to not be lazy, not be lazy. Yeah, well, one thing that's been really convicting for me recently has been, and Joey mentioned this too, that your words as a dad are going to have a thousand times the weight, whether you like it or not, um, things like that. And it's come up in my household explicitly that when I, when I come back after a long day or travel or whatever, the way that I conduct myself and, and the impact that has on the, the atmosphere in my home with my family and the way that my kids behave and the way my wife reflects me is really a massive force. So I think as men, if you're having challenges at your house, you've, you've, you've got to look in the mirror 100%. And, and you, can't, you can't clock out. You have to put the effort in. But once you've done it and you've seen it and you slot into the way that this, this book says that you should behave, you see it all come together and you see the space brighten, see your kids' eyes lighten up, you see your wife look at you in a way that maybe you haven't seen in a while. It's, it's really uh, convicting. Okay, and, and, and I'll wrap up my perspective. I heard this from, um, he's a great leader out of Tulsa. His name's Chris Hart. And um, he talks about, hey, as, as men, we are called to lean just beyond our current state. Not too far that we, you know, get stressed and, and, and we're unstable or unhealthy and not too far back to where we become lazy, but just outside of our current ability so that we're always growing and developing. That's one. And, and the way that he says it is um, choosing to do things that we're not good at today hardens us for future difficulties. So he, he says, choose hard, choose hard, choose hard, get hard, right? You're hardened for tomorrow's, t- tomorrow's difficulties. And I think to your point, Zach, is truth is, guys, there's no end in sight. There's no end in sight. There's no, like, hey, we don't get to finish as a Christ follower until we join Christ on the other side of heaven. We don't get to end as a husband or a dad. That is not a race that has an end in sight. So we have to continually operate at a pace that we are proud of when there's no end in sight. And that takes grit, and that takes determination, and that takes perseverance resonating with that deep down inside of, of the heart of a man who says, no, 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 I can do that. There's a million guys out there. I'm going to be number one. But there's also like, the, the, there's a reliance too. Like I, I have to have God absolutely to do this. And I think to your point of like, we should be, we should be leaning forward enough that we're outside of our comfort zone, but not far enough back. Like Proverbs talks about that too. Like give me enough bread that I'm, that I'm full, right. but I, I don't have so much that I forget that God gave it to me. Make me just hungry enough that I know I need God so in everything. I, I just remembered hearing about, uh, it was this guy that was digging into the Exodus stories and you get the manna from heaven. And they're, depending upon the level of faith that the, the Israelites were operating with, depended on the amount of manna that fell from heaven. So on the days when people would gather extra manna, like manna that would not just sustain them for that day, but would sustain them for two or three days after, less manna would fall. And like, it was almost like, Hey, I'm giving you what you need. You don't need to keep storing this up. I got you. And so like, that was just an interesting thing. But I thought about, you know, I've heard people talk about before, like a man, no matter what someone's going to lose, because if you focus too much on your family, your, your work life's going to suffer and yeah, your boss needs more of you. Right. And if you run your own business, you're your boss, you need more of you. You know, if you focus too much on work, then your family needs more of you. And like, no matter what you're going to fail. Anybody that's selling these, you know, become a CEO in 48 hours and like, you know, do all, the, all these all like self-helpy business type things, they're full of it. They're absolutely full of crap. These people are not crushing it in all areas of their life. They're simply not. Somebody is always left wanting. 
but you get to choose what category of people is left wanting. Is it your followers on Instagram? Is it your family? Is it your employees? And the thing is, is the level of responsibility, Zach, to, back to what you were talking about, the level of responsibility for a man is very, very high, tough. That is the mandate that you were given. Is it fair? No, but you don't have to get birth. And so it's like, you know, like we all have our roles and we all have the things in our life that sucks. And it's like, just get over it. You're spending all this time lamenting the responsibilities you were given, but they were given to you nonetheless. Deal with it. But is it fair? Like, I think God says it's fair. Like, I, I think you could argue that-, that Through our is, perspective, it is, it's not. But yeah, through his the, perspective, yeah, it's the, perfect. To the world yeah. standards, like, yeah, it does, it's not fair. And like, it's, but like, we don't get to decide that. That's, we're not the arbitrator of, of fairness. That's a good point. And, and Kyle, to your point, um, building on yours, Zach, is we get to choose, right? If, if something's going to fail, we get to choose. Now, it, this kind of goes against verse eight in, in a way, but if we provide for his relatives, I think God calls us to be um, present in the places that only we can be present. Nobody can be a husband to Gina except for me. Nobody can be a father to my children except for me. Nobody can read my Bible and pray except for me. I can't, I can't outsource that to somebody else. Hey, will you read my Bible and pray for me on these three things and just fill me in later, right? But those are the highest priorities, the places that require me as a husband and a father and as a Christ follower to be. My job should, in my opinion, move farther down the list without losing the perspective here that I still have a responsibility to provide for my relatives. Practical responsibility to kind of kind of speak towards what Zach's saying. There's a lot of practicality in there. My, my, uh, my Sunday school teacher, Terry Fakes, he's a great teacher of the word. He always says, if people read their Bible and did what it said, the self-help industry would be non-existent. <laughs> and I think that's, I think that's so true. It's funny, but like, it's, I think it's true. Like there, there are practical truths in here. Like, Hey, it's not just an admonishment. It's not just saying like, you're worse than an unbeliever. It's a call. It's an invitation to provide for your family. Right. And it's a breath of fresh air. I mean, it's the culture that we're in right now. We're fighting against perception. Like I saw something the other day and it said, only a woman who's had birth with uh, no epidural can understand what it's like for a man to have a cold. You know, so that's just women patting themselves on the back for things that only they can do. That's the bar. Yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. uh, And maybe, maybe this would be a good place to wrap this up because there's still some good stuff in, in chapter five, but Derek, this goes to something that you were talking about. It's like, okay, providing for food, shelter, like, you know, uh, those basic provisions. Right. But typically when somebody reads verse eight and feels that haunting condemnation like I did is it was because the ideal life that I think I have in my brain is what I'm trying to provide for my kids. So in addition to food, shelter, and basic necessities is whatever college they want to go to and the exact shoes that'll make me run that mile a little bit faster and uh, making sure that we've got enough money to train jujitsu and making sure we can take vacations and making sure we can do this, making sure we can do that. In and of itself, those things are not negative things. They're not sinful things, but they become little idols. Right. And it's like, I need money to feed my little idols. And so a lot of guys that listen to this are golfers. So you need money and you need time because you're going to go golf two or three times a week. You're going to spend X amount of dollars. You're going to go eat at the clubhouse at the turn or whatever. Like you're, you're, you're just feeding into that idol. And like, regardless of what your thing is, it could be hunting, it could be shooting, it could be, you know, playing pickup basketball and, you know, playing in leagues or whatever. Like all these things take money, time, and attention away. And that's the life that we're thinking we're not providing for our children. Right. Because we're not, we want to live in the same house that our friends are living in. We want to be driving the same cars. We want to be doing all those things. And then that extrapolates itself out into people putting themselves into immeasurable amounts of debt just so that they can keep up with people that don't actually even pay attention to them. So you want to get this car so everyone will notice and then no one notices. And so you think it's a problem with the car, Right. It's like, no, it's like they're living their life and they're chasing somebody else and they're not paying attention to you because you're below them in terms of this socioeconomic scale. And so I think that's a very interesting thing, guys. Like if you're providing, we're not talking about spiritually right now, just talking about financially. Are you able to feed and clothe and shelter your kids? Okay, everything else is window dressing, everything else. And so that's hard when you live in a society like we do that has riches that were incomprehensible to an audience in the Mediterranean Rim 2,000 years ago, like an unbelievable amount of opulence. 
but that's the world that we live in. And so we have to take that into account as we're thinking through these scriptures and how they apply to us today. Uh, one thing that I did want to talk about from, uh, again, there's so much here in, in the fifth chapter that we can't possibly get into all of it, but I wanted to go, go ahead and skip on to verse 20. It says, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Okay, so on the forging table, you know, a couple months back, we went through Galatians 2. We went through Paul rebuking Peter directly to his face in front of people, right? Because Peter was acting in a somewhat racist fashion. He was, um, you know, pretending to be down with what the Judaizers were saying and doing, thus making the Gentiles feel as if they were lesser than, uh, than if they were, you know, Jews and all these different things. And so it was just a bad thing. And Paul rebuked Peter to his face. And that's one of my favorite parts of the Bible, because I think as Christians, we get rebuke wrong. Uh, we, we handle it incorrectly because we think rebuke is icky and mean and judgmental and yuck. And Christ wouldn't possibly do such a thing. But again, right here, as for those who persist in sin, so he's giving you a standard. Yeah. So it's not somebody that trips and falls into sin in once. And then you're like, I am going to rebuke you in public. Like, no, no, somebody that is persisting in, in sin, you rebuke them in the presence of all. And then my favorite part of this verse, so that the rest may stand in fear. Mm-hmm. This is why that's important. Because we were talking about this off air. We live in a culture that does not think utilizing fear or shame is a positive thing. But those are tremendous motivators. One of the reasons why I don't look at porn and masturbate anymore is because the level of shame that I remember feeling when almost 20 years ago, my girlfriend found porn on my computer. And the, the hurt and, and the pain that I remember seeing in her face, that's part of the shame that I feel. But also, the shame is not so I can identify with that shame and say, oh, I'm, I'm this type of a person. But it's like, that's part of my story of depravity as well. And if I don't understand the level of depravity inside of me, if I don't understand the, the motivator that shame and fear is, because I am fearful of letting my wife and family down. I am fearful of a good, just God that can't have sin in his presence. And man, you can glaze right over verse 20. But that, man, that is like some, this is how we should live stuff. Because people are talking about, oh, you shouldn't fear God. And, you know, God's just this, you know, pussycat. And he's just this really, really nice thing. He loves like, you for who you are. Yeah, he loves yeah. you for who you are. Be known for what you're for, not what you're, what you're against. Like, those types of people. <laughs> like, that. this shows you, like, no, bro. Like, fear is a great motivator. Shame is a tremendous motivator. There are a lot of people that used to be fat that aren't fat anymore. Because shame motivates them every day to put on their workout shoes and go hit the gym. Right? It's, it's a powerful motivator. And I think we should utilize it. I agree. But I think the one of the keywords here, well, there's a few persist is one. And then as for like, he's, he's calling back. It's almost like Paul is calling back to the first part of this chapter where he's saying he's, he's telling us to use gentleness. And there's a, there's a specific way that, that we've been, you know, called to, to call out sin and to, to rebuke people. Um, but he's saying that this, this is like a guy who's like Derek sinning. I've called him out. Kyle's called him out. He's like, ah, I'm going to do it anyway. All right. That's where we're at here. And this verse is like, okay, clearly you have not listened to our gentle, our gentle reminder that you should not be sinning. Now it's time to push that a little bit further. But yeah, I think we, we don't, we don't do that really at all. And, and big, big C church doesn't do that at all. But I think, I think there's a balance there too. I think people jump to that. People want to go Calvinists are, are, famous for this, you know, especially new Calvinists that are like, you're the worst. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> man, I just, I don't know what I did, but you know, psych- be psycholo- right. psychologically speaking, I've got a little bit of a background, from a negotiation standpoint and all that kind of stuff. And what they'll tell you is that the fear of loss is overwhelmingly more influential than uh, gain. So we're wired that way. We were created to think that way. And I think it's something that's going to sear into you if you have to experience it or if you have to think about experiencing it. And I think that's why it's here. And one thing I'll, I'll say that I thought this was really good is that the purpose of discipline is restoration, not revenge. Yep. Our purpose yeah. must be to save the offender, not to drive him away. Our attitude must be one of love and tenderness. In fact, the verb restore that Paul used in Galatians 6.1 means to set a broken bone. So speak the truth in love. Make sure you have a connection. You should be motivated from the right reasons. And that person should understand that. And then, you know, somewhere else it also says that, you know, if that person is rebuked, a wise person will learn from it. Yep. 
when I, again, it's so that the rest may stand in fear as well, because people are watching. Yep. And so like for, for any of you listening in the audience, I have multiple children and my children are a little bit too young for this to notice. But when one of the kids gets in trouble for doing something and all the other kids see the punishment and see the wrongdoing, they know the score now. They're like, so if I do that, like I should expect a similar punishment. Now, some people punish their kids based on their age and they're standing in the household and blah, 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 and I get it. But like, that's such an important thing that you, you punish, you admonish, you rebuke in public so that people understand, hey, here are the wages of what you're doing. Like the, the wages of this particular sin, you know, I know from scripture, the wages of sin are death, but in this particular sin, like this is the rebuke that you're going to get. And guys, all of us have played different sports in our lives. And I think all of us have been chewed out by a coach before. How often does that coach take you aside? away from everybody to give you a nice little light talking to where nobody hears you and is embarrassed. Cause I don't know about you guys, but all my butt chewings came in front of the team, right? So much so that everybody stopped what they were doing, pretending like they're still playing catch. You're like, Oh man, Kyle's yeah. getting ripped a new one. This is awesome. <laughs> but that, that's what happens. He's not doing, your coach is not doing that to embarrass you. He's also not doing that because practically it makes more sense to do it right now where we're standing as opposed to walking 50 yards over there and doing it. It's because he's trying to uphold a standard for the entire team. Right. Yeah. And he's, a, he's rebuking you in that moment to teach you something, but he's also teaching everybody else. The same would be true for us as Christians. If we're re- being rebuked by a brother in Christ, you know, that's utilizing the love of Christ to rebuke us, that should make all of us stand to attention and think, yeah. I'm glad I'm not in his seat right now, but I'm still learning the lesson. Okay, so two things. One, Matt, you made the comment earlier. What if we just read the Bible and did what it said? How different would that make? How different would that make things? I mean, it'd be absolutely a complete culture shift. Number one. Number two is, um, you know, verse 19, the one right before it. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As far as as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. What that requires is also a relationship. Mm-hmm. It requires a relationship, and it's not you see somebody in the parking lot, you've never seen them before, they do something, they yell at their kid, and then in the middle of church it is, you, I saw you yell at your children. You know, it is your coach. And, and Kyle, you talked about your shame when it came to that girlfriend 20 years ago. Um, it, mine is, I immediately went to sporting situations exactly where a coach rips you, grabs you by the shoulders and moves you over here and says, I want you here this time now. And you're like, okay, I'll never do that again. And, or I remember a specifically a time when I was in high school um, running cross country and it was like a high, Southeastern Oklahoma it was 180 degrees outside and it, we're in the middle of a cross country run. And, and it was, I just, I didn't want to run anymore. And so I sat down. <laughs> I sat down. Um, and then, at the end of the race, I finished, and of course, I was so slow, and the coach asked me, that was horrible. What happened? Oh, um, it was heat exhaustion. And so it was the overwhelming shame of lying about why I stopped, and I remember completely making the agreement mentally with myself, I never want to feel that way again. It's so funny how, like, we are all Adam's children. Like... He, he like God knows what happened, and Adam still tries to tell him a different story. Like, it was that woman you gave like, me. I don't need the blame. <laughs> don't give me the blame. It was somebody else's fault. Like it's so interesting that like it is. It just echoes through all of time. But how, but guys, but you- think about it pragmatically. Like all of us have had successes and failures in our careers and our lives and relationships and whatever. What do you remember more? The, the wild successes and everything that got you there or the horrific oh, failures? the embarrassments oh, and yeah. failures and shame. Right. And so every time yeah. you stepped on your own, you know what, and face planted. Yeah. And like, you know, I talked about this in terms of hunting. I've shot one animal in my life that I wounded and didn't kill. And I think about that animal all the time because there are three or four mistakes directly that I made that led to the wounding of one of God's creation, right? And I think about that. So like, I've had some big successes and some really fun things that have happened because of hunting, but it's the mistakes that I made. But you don't just look at them so that you can shame yourself. You look at them so you can learn from them. Yeah. Like, look at the, the things that I did wrong in preparation. Look at the things that I did wrong in terms of mindset. You don't sit down in the middle of a race like, and not actually have heat stroke if you had done what, it, what you needed to do to make sure you were mentally ready to go for that Amen. race. Amen. And, and so that, that's the thing that I think is very, very important for all of us there's a level of preparation that you do for everything. For some people, Matt, as you were talking about with the, the Paul Washer sermon, it's like, okay, if your day starts when you get home, 
what do you need to do to mentally prepare yourself before you walk in the door? Like oh, you don't just walk yeah. in and say, Oh, I guess I'll respond yeah. to whatever happens. That's when you're, that's when you're becoming a thermometer, not a thermostat. Yeah. Right. And so I know guys that will literally, I've, I've heard this before. I can't remember where I heard it the first time where a dad would get home from work long day at the whatever job he had. And he would walk over to a tree and he would pretend as if he was taking yeah. off the backpack of his day and he would hang it on the tree and say, all my problems from work, all my problems with my bosses, all my problems with all the other people that that's on that bag. That's the weight that I'm carrying from that bag. The weight is on that tree now. Now it's time to take care of my family. And when he walked out in the morning to go to work, walks back over to the tree, grabs a non-existent bag, pretends to put it on his back. Now he's back in work mode, right? That, that's a tremendous apologetic for, for guys to look at. It's like, look, you don't just do things by happenstance. No. You do them based on a, a certain level of preparation. Uh, now, before we, we wrap up uh, the fifth chapter of 1 Timothy, Derek, you were talking off here about verses 24 and 25. And to be honest, I buzzed right through those and missed everything that you were talking about. So I want to make sure you talk about that. Okay, 24, 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Uh, what I pulled out of that was uh, two pieces. One, we have to be patient. In, in the good and the bad, to see what happens. Um, I think it is a callback to uh, Paul's letter in uh, 3, uh, when he was telling Timothy that, hey, leaders of the church should not be new believers, right? There's not enough maturity and time to let either good fruit or bad fruit. Uh, I think, Kyle, what, what I said off air was that, hey, it's like a tree. You have to give it time. When a tree is planted, sometimes it doesn't produce fruit for um, one, two, or three years. And so you have to see a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Let's give it time to produce fruit to see what happens here. So be patient in both the good and bad um, to see what's faithful, what's not faithful, what's sinful. Yeah, I was, I was looking for the psalm. I don't have time to look for it now. There's a psalm where it talks about the, the success of the wicked. And in, like by worldly standards, like the wicked look good. They make a lot of money, but God is sovereign. Those things will, those things will be, will be revealed. Those things will play out. There's a cosmic justice. And so I got, yeah, I think that's a great point. Like the, like somebody might look like they're got it all together, but to a certain extent, like sometimes, like it's not always our place to, you shouldn't be going looking for that. Right. We should, we should be able to look inward. We should hate our own, our own sin more than we hate others for sure. Yeah, I think being patient is, is, a, is, a, is a great point. Because both trees, a good tree and a bad tree, they can look good when those leaves come out, right? Mm-hmm. But then you got to see what fruit is actually produced. And, and what I like about this is the second part. Good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not. So when you do good thing, hidden good things because uh, you're serving people, you're giving, whatever it is, they will not always remain hidden. Those good things will, will bubble or boil to the surface, and people will understand and see impact. If you're doing good things and, and planting good seed, eventually, after when the harvest comes, you, you will reap a good harvest. Well, I think there's a connection here, too. too. I, I couldn't find the exact reference uh, quickly, but like the sin of partiality, I think that's in James, James 2. James, yeah, um, James. But then also just you know uh, when you prefer people that dress a certain way, that's what I was trying to find where the rich people were given preference, preferential oh, yeah. treatment and preferential placement where they're, where they're being set in the temple and all exactly. That, yeah. And we do that with people as well in our lives, because again, people that look attractive, people that uh, are good at sports, people that are successful in business, yep. people that have attained uh, judicial power or governmental power or something like that. We look at those people differently and we give them more grace, don't we? Because like if, a not I'm using uh, the, the mayor. So, cause our mayor is a very upstanding man in this town. So let's say he wasn't, let's say he was a, a drunkard and a swindler and a, you know, a womanizer and those types of things, uh, something that I don't know the, the current mayor of Edmond, Oklahoma to be, but let's say that person is that way, but he's the mayor of your city and you run a business in that city. And so when you see him doing some of those things, you kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. But then when you see just some, like some, you know, jack wagon that or some homeless guy or something like that, like someone you see is beneath that, doing the same exact type of behaviors, you look at that person with disgust. Mm. You're just like, oh, what a wretched person. That's why you're in that station in yeah. life because look how terrible you are. But again, we look at people's shiny outsides and we're just like, oh, well, 
there's probably a good reason why they made that off-color joke. You know what? That was kind of racist, what they just said, but man, he's got like three successful businesses. So maybe it wasn't racist. Maybe I'm the problem. Maybe my truth is that they're not a raving narcissist and that there's something different, right? Like that's kind of what it gets into. Well, well go, go, go to Ecclesiastes. I mean, all of that is about trying to sort out that very real predicament in life of why are some people mm-hmm. in this position where they're very well off and everything. Just real quick, I read this the other day and I thought it was really good. For he, this is uh, from or Psalm 49. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beast that perishes. And it talks about going to the pit. So from God's perspective, we're here for a blip. Yep. You don't take it with you. When you're stacking yourself against other people, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you're talking about we look at people differently, like, I think that's why Paul uses the elder, like, that we're rebuking. We're rebuking an elder so that other people know, like, no one, not even the guy who runs our church is above the law word of God. And I think we live in a society where we don't touch the anointed, we don't rebuke the anointed, and there are, there are celebrity pastors out there you can't call out because, again, we don't, we don't mess with that person who is ordained by God, we can't call them out. And I think that's, that's why Paul does that right there. It's like, man, even the elder, even the pastor is held to the standard that he's telling y'all to be captive to. Even he is not above that. Well, he says it right there in verse 21, keep these rules. You know, Mm -hmm. he's talking to Timothy, keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Yep. Nothing at all. Yep. Do nothing, which that's incredibly hard on a day-to-day basis. For I mean, sure. just like you, you were talking through, Kyle. I mean, that's, it's incredibly challenging to do this on a day-to-day basis, given what we see people and they're posing, right? What they're putting out there, pretending to be, that's all we see for the most part. And so it's hard to make that determination. Social media makes that worse. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, oh, you sure. know, because again, you, you put your highlight reel on your Instagram, like you don't, you don't put the, the horrible things that happen. I remember I was on the phone with somebody yesterday and obviously I'll remain, them, remain nameless but I've known these people for a very, very long time. And I've known their wife to always be very, very sweet and very, you know, very subdued. And uh, anyway, like I was on the phone with him and then they were trying to like coordinate who was going to leave and who was going to pick up which kid and all that. And for the first time in my life, I heard this person's wife and they were, they had some bite to their tone. They weren't exactly rude, but I was like, oh my gosh, like that's how she talks when no one's around. And I've known this girl for 20 years. And then all of a sudden it was like, I just heard a slightly different side of her, but isn't that all true of us? Because like, you know, I try to be as authentic as possible and that's kind of part of my brand is I'm going to authentically give you my opinion because words and anger and ginger and whatever. But like, that's the thing that I, I try to do, but y'all don't know the level of my depravity. Y'all don't know the worst things that I've said and done. And you certainly don't know the worst things that I've thought. Well, we have three but- minutes left, Kyle. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, yeah, we do. Oh, you want so, me to just like kind yeah, of launch him? Yeah. Well, the point that I was trying to make, <laughs> you jerk face, the point I was trying to make is there is someone that does know exactly the level of our depravity, and that's God. Yep. And even in that knowledge, that foreknowledge of everything that we would think and do that would be evil, he still found it in his goodness to send his son to this earth to give us the opportunity to have propitiation or payment in full for our sins. So that's why when you're preaching the gospel, you preach the full-throated gospel where you are not the hero and you are not the point. You are merely a bystander to the tremendous value that is grace that is given freely. And so I don't know of a better way to leave that, but if you want me to go, go in and elucidate all my horrible things, <laughs> no, maybe we, we could go. Can we go ahead and pass on, Derek? I think we can stop there. Okay, I think we need it. Okay, guys. We're going to have to leave it there. There's a whole lot more that we could have talked about, but we're going to come back next Sunday and dig into 1 Timothy 6, wrapping up 1 Timothy. So guys, make sure that you read 1 Timothy 6 this next week so that you can be prepared for that. <clears throat> Excuse me. But before we get out of here, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the one link we've got for you today is a link to our donation page. As we've talked about over and over, we are donation-based ministry. That is how we're able to keep the lights on. So guys, if you like this content, sharing it is great. Giving us five stars and all that is 
perfect. But the only way we can continue to produce this content is if we have your financial support. So please go to that link so that you can hop on board and help us out with that. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.